Boat Alive. I'm Tom Barbele, and this is a continuation of the Biota Podcast. For more information on the Biota Podcast, go to biota.org slash podcast. We have a caller on the line. I believe it's Bruce Damer. Hello, hello, Tom. How are you? Good to talk to you this evening. So, as you're a seasoned veteran, we have some news and notes, and then we'll get into this evening's topic. We will not have a topic in a fortnight's time. This is the last live-recorded episode of Biota Live this year, and I'd like to send thanks out to everyone who's participated. I was updating the Facebook group a couple of weekends ago, and we've had a number of people on Biota Live since it was launched about a year ago. It's been quite a, a phenomenal mechanism to get folks back into the conversation and to keep folks who are already in the conversation conversing. I mean, what, what's your assessment with regards to Biota Live, Bruce? Oh, I think it's it's been tremendous. I mean, we we started out we started out the year wondering if we could get people to to add their voices, and and if you look at the sheer number of people who've come on the show, listen to the show, uh, I think it's it's been a, a dramatic uh, improvement in the communications within the community between the academic, the hobbyist, industrialist. It's uh, it's just worked wonders. And certainly, I think it's it's given a bridge between what would traditionally happen in a conference and what had happened previously through the Biota interviews. I mean, I think a lot of the discussions that go on in Biota Live are, are generally conversive and have the potential to form projects such as the Evo Grid, for example. Oh, yeah, and in fact, uh, just having a venue uh, every few weeks to come in and talk about the Evil Grid um, with different people has really helped me formulate uh, what I'm trying to do and changed it uh, and involved other people as well. Certainly, certainly. So what to expect next year in Biota Live? Early on in the year, I hope to have Zan Gill back on. She's had a lot more things to, to talk about and think about since she was last on Biota Live. I think she's done three major talks since she was last on Biota Live, Bruce. And I'm not sure, have you heard any of the ones at Stanford or any of the ones at Ames? I was at the one at Ames. That was a group of us, including Chris McKay, uh, who presented at Ames. Uh, but I, I missed the, the Stanford one. Uh, the uh, I had very little energy uh, last week and, and this week. The only talk I went to at Stanford was uh, Douglas Engelbart's, the 40th anniversary of Douglas Engelbart's famous demo. Gosh, was phenomenal, just a phenomenal event. So I have my hand on the mouse currently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he affected everything that we do, I guess, in some quite profound way. In any case, additional people coming on. I hope to have Mark Badeau back on. And uh, we've been in some correspondence this week, Bruce, with regards to Mark. Yeah, in fact, uh, thank you for mentioning uh, myself and the PhD work. Uh, he sent me a kind note saying, I'm interested, I may be interested in advising, uh, being part of an advisement of this work if it, if it fits my, um, what I'm interested in. So I, I sent him a note back, uh, as you suggested, uh, uh, asking if we could have a chat on the phone. And I, I gave him a little bit of background on, on uh, in a humorous way, because I, th I think he's a, he's a Brit, right? Um, I'm not sure. I, I think he's an American who spends sufficient time in Europe that his accent is mellowed, and I'm, I'm never really sure with Mark. Well, he, he seemed like kind of more relaxed and, uh, and a bit of a humorous guy, so I took that tack. I haven't heard back from him. Right. I, I just assume it's, it's uh, his Oregonian um, roots in some regard. But anyway, in addition to this, apologies um, coming in this evening from Larry Yeager, He's uh, excited to get back into the conversation. Obviously, there are a number of topics that Larry can participate in, and he was an earlier uh, participant in Bios Live this year. And also from Steve Grand, who is currently working on a robot, uh, but will be back in the discussion with regards to an artificial life game project that he's been working on for a number of years now. Well, speaking of robotics, the, our conversation a couple of weeks ago, Bruce, concluded, and I realized I hadn't made one final critical point with regards to the idea of a hobbyist, and that um, came to me through listening to the Robots podcast this week, but I also had a sense of this previously. Do you know there are two mainstream hobbyist robotics magazines, Bruce, Robot and Servo? I've, I've, I've been around uh, at Dorkbot 
um, and at a, an event in New York City, I was around uh, real hardcore robotics hobbyists, and, and I, I figured they must have something like a Make magazine that was just, just about robotics. Yes, I mean, I think this is the, the blueprint for the artificial life community in some regard, is that if we get a sufficient number of hobbyists, then the next step is to have a magazine of, of some description. And certainly with magazines and these kind of things, it gives a way for firstly hobbyists to be published and also a kind of indigenous industry to, to grow up around uh, you know, hobbyist-related development, as has obviously happened in the robotics community. So that was really my concluding point at the end of our last discussion, Bruce, that once a hobby reaches a certain level, it starts creating these spin-offs, things like magazines and also you know, small industries that the hobbyists can kind of uh, make pocket money through in some regard. And I thought it was, I had thought about a wide variety of other engineering hobbies, but just listening to the robots podcast this week uh, reminded me that there are actually a couple of, uh, and I guess Make magazine, and these kind of magazines also contain components that are even to a certain minor extent wired, and New Scientist and Popular Mechanics and all of these things have, have hobbyist uh, robotics elements to them. And I think the artificial life community can learn quite a bit from that. So in addition to this, the Biota Conversations mailing list has really hotted up over the past week. In fact, today in particular, there was a lot of correspondence. And if folks are interested in maintaining their Biota podcast connections through the, the break, the place to go is the Biota Conversations mailing list. In the past couple of days, we've discussed things like the next generation of spore, whether it should contain uh, physics and uh, genomes. We've discussed zombie chess manipulation of chess to create um, means of beating entropy in chess. Dick Gordon currently has a course that he's offering in Second Life, and if people have heard Dick Gordon in the podcasts, you should get in contact with Dick currently because I'm not sure when the closing date is for his course, but he was certainly asking for folks in the community to participate. Bruce, do you have... Any more information with regards to when Dick's course will actually be run? Yeah, I think that sometime next week we're going to hear he's collecting the people and then he's going to ask about times, and I think it's going to be kind of Second Life-based uh, course, probably with audio. Um, Dick and I have had somewhat regular meetings in Second Life in his office, uh, which is kind of a cool. It's a, built by his wife. It's the I guess it's called the Silver Lake or the Silver Bog Center, and it's his wife built this environment in Second Life as World, and um, and he's we've gotten the audio interface down pretty well, although it's 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 buggier than Blog Talk Radio, I have to tell you. Yes, I mean Blog Talk Radio has really improved in leaps and bounds over the past year. I remember. Some of the early recordings, I went back and listened to them, particularly some of the ones with Justin Lyon on. I remember one in particular, he did the local recording of the entire show, and the rest of us sounded quite echoey, and obviously there's the infamous initial Evo Grid discussion where poor Gerald de Jung sounded like some Wookiee with a robotic voice synthesizer behind it. So we've, uh, yeah, we've sailed through, hopefully, the worst of it with Blog Talk Radio, and the interface so far is, is very good. For folks who are interested in participating, we have an active chat room, uh, and also if you want to participate via by the telephone, the contact number is 646-200-0640. Now, over the break, I'm going to air one of the recordings that I did through the Thanksgiving period, and I think it will probably be the first one with uh, Eric Burton. It's a fascinating discussion that covers some of the topics that has gone, have gone through the Biota Conversations mailing list recently. But it's a rather long one. It's about 90 minutes total. So if folks are interested, it'll be coming up in the near future. In addition, I will be talking for the first time in front of an audience in five years uh, tomorrow evening at Las Vegas Futurist. The last talk I gave was at the European Game Developers Conference in London in 2003, Bruce. Gosh. So a long time. I mean, when I joke about you being my avatar in the real world, there's a, a, a good deal of element of truth to it all. Um, however, I will be talking about a, an artificial life-related topic, which is still being drawn up, but will no doubt feature a, a number of uh, vens into the biota community and probably some discussion uh, with regards to half a dozen of our fellow practitioners that appear frequently through biota lives. So it's going to be interesting to talk to them. I'm just scrolling through my news and notes. Ah, the great unrelated news, I don't think there are going to be any meetings coming up, but I did want to put out a message to the broader biota community that there are a number of 
grey some chapters that I've discussed through the year and the London, the New York and the Benelux in particular, I know we have Gerald de Jung on frequently, but these are all chapters. I mean, London and Benelux, with regards to Justin Lyne and Gerald de Jung specifically, are two chapters that are weighed primarily on those two individuals. And if there are folks who are listening in the uh, broader London area or similarly the uh, Belgium, the Netherlands and Luxembourg, the Benelux region, it would be ideal that we develop a, a small community of folk who are going to take on the Graysum chapters there. And similarly, New York, it's a, a curious thing through doing things like Biota Live that you can put out the message. And I remember uh, listening to uh, a Biota Live where I listed all the various regions, including Melbourne, Australia, Bruce, with regards to places where there was sufficient numbers to actually generate Graysum chapters. And I think what's happening in uh, the Bay Area is fascinating because it's really hybridized into just a kind of group meeting on a, on a monthly basis to talk about topics, to have speakers through occasionally, and it's actually far less formalized in some regard than what goes on in Boston. But really, it is a matter of the groups to form their own, you know, their own methods, their own modes of operating. And if you just want to get together on a, a monthly basis or every other month and talk about your specific projects or talk about a particular topic of interest, I mean, I think the thing with Graysum as it has evolved is that there is no real blueprint to what a, what a Graysum should be. I mean, Bruce, you've, you've attended a few of these Graysum meetings. What's your, what's your feeling to the, to the Biota community? Yeah, I, I've attended uh, Boston, uh, which was a vivacious meeting in a quite noisy uh, uh, pub, the Asgard Pub on Cambridge Avenue. And it's definitely a blend, a lot of academic presentations and hobbyists and game developers and whatnot. And uh, people are drinking beer and having food and pub-type food. And then in the London uh, Graysum we were at the British Computer Society, which is an august organization, uh, you know, formal uh, rooms right in the center, right on the Strand in London, and, and was only at the one session with, with Justin myself. Um, so quite kind of a British thing, in, in a sense, a uh, British-type setting. And then, and of course, we went to a pub afterwards. And in Silicon Valley, it's in the heart of Silicon Valley, Menlo Park, where we meet at a famous cafe, uh, nearby, and then we go down to SRI, which is this incredible center of, of the birth of uh, user interfaces and of, of autonomous robotics and AI and everything is there, you know, between Stanford and, 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 and SRI, which used to be called Stanford Research Institute, um, and uh, government funding and whatnot. So there's this blend of artificial intelligence people, hobbyists, um, sort of blended people like me, uh, and who come from all over the Bay Area, some of them on Caltrain. And, uh, and of course, when we were at the Internet Archive, it's a different sense altogether. It's in the, the foggy San Francisco in this old military um, residence building where uh, Brewster Kale's organization is. And, and you're, you, you can see the Golden Gate Bridge out one window, and the, you're in the Presidio. And uh, there's a, a San Francisco feeling to it. So... I, the, the setting is, is, is very and a very important influence. Certainly, and I mean, looking at the photos of Gerald's um, presentation and the Netherlands, I get the sense that they're too, you know, they, they really have a hybridization of what you're saying. The strengths are in in Boston, London, and Silicon Valley in some regard. But I think I mean, even what came through Great on Brighton, which was just a simple meeting of of like minds in a pub for a chat and a shaking of hands is a really good way that the community can gather. Um, Robert Rice is going to be here in Vegas in early January. He's coming out for CES, and I know he met up with John Daigle when John Daigle was going through um, Raleigh, North Carolina. So, I mean, there are all these kind of impromptu meetings, which I think is, is fundamentally what, you know, what was the, the origins of Graytham in some regard. So, in addition to this... Um, this is, as I noted, this has been a year of Biota Lives, and I put out a series of questions to the Biota Conversations mailing list, to which I got a series of very positive responses, but I wanted to put these out publicly to the listeners as well. I'm curious if the topics of Biota Live have been diverse enough, whether the show is too long, uh, whether you listen to each episode as it comes out, or whether you listen to them in groups. 
I think Robert Rice's feedback, and you've given the same feedback, Bruce, is that you kind of cache them for when you're flying or when you have periods of time with a with an iPod near you, and that certainly has been the feedback from some listeners. Also folks that listen to it while they drive and listen to it periodically in that regard, so they'll listen to you know 20 minutes, 30 minutes when they, when they get a moment. So I'm interested in hearing how listeners listen to it. And um, if... You know, if you only listen to occasional ones, and I do get the sense that the particular topics seem to gather a lot of people in the community um, just through the download numbers. So I'm interested in basically listener feedback. Should I come and uh, could I return and do some interviews in the future? I guess Larry Yeager was almost a traditional interview format, although we had Ed in as well, and that was wonderful. I do like the both live format even for interviews. And should we encourage more people to uh, enter the Biota Live uh, discussion? Should we encourage uh, biologists, people outside the, the normal reaches of artificial life? And, uh, you know, what kind of narrative or discussion would folks who listen to this podcast frequently like to hear? So I'm interested in feedback. I'm interested in questions. I'm interested in ideas for show topics in the coming year. And one final point, you may be interested to know that the little musical intros that I've been putting in occasionally uh, were requested by a couple of listeners, and I'm responsible for um, all the musical stuff associated with Biota Live, except for the beatboxing uh, and scratching, which come from my friends in Montreal. So I will be putting a little bit more music on either ends, and it was wonderful to have uh, Gerald Sun and his girlfriend contributing some music. So, Bruce, the topic for this week relates to the EvoGrid Broad. People who've listened to this podcast for many months will be familiar with the original idea of the EvoGrid and certainly from the first EvoGrid call that we had on Biota Live with so many participants, it was very much an idea of collaboration. This has really stayed with the idea of the EvoGrid Broad, although you seem to talk a lot more about the EvoGrid Deep. Do you want to compare and contrast the two of them and talk a little bit more about the EvoGrid Broad? Yeah, in fact, the, the Evo Grid Broad kind of came out of uh, my initial thinking of if I was to, to in a sense, re-enter the technology side of artificial life rather than the community organization and, and cheerleading side, which is what I've been in uh, for many years and reading and, and admiring of people's work, trying to get people's work featured, what would I work on? And usually this always comes down to a question for me. It's basically in the beginnings of the virtual worlds medium, online worlds in the early 90s, I said to myself, what do I work on? If I, do I sit and I write, a, write my own virtual world platform? Well, that might take me two, three, four years, and it might not be a successful platform. And better for me to actually go out and try to get all the platform uh, makers come together in a conference and talk about interoperability and standards and good applications for avatar space, which is what I did in founding the Contact Consortium. So when I started to think of what can I do to, to help the artificial life movement, especially the hobbyist side of things, it came to me that it's all about connection. It's about a grid. It's about you put your simulation together and it, it, it can thrive in its own little way with its own early adopters and it can thrive to an extent until you run out of time, resources, money, and then it, it kind of falls away. And modern modern computing systems are all based on grids. The entire web, you know, the YouTubes and the, the Twitters are networks. So if we could somehow connect the artificial life uh, simulators into the into a network where they become excuse me, where they become citizens and they can exchange objects then there will be all boats will rise. There will be a lot more uh, behavior and a lot more emergent phenomena in these, in these worlds. People will be encouraged to pick up other people's projects when they're, they've run out of steam. Uh, there will be just a tremendous uplift of, of the entire movement. And that would mean, I was thinking of, of Claude's um, University of Paris, Darwin's Park, uh, L-System Forest. And I remember Claude made the comment uh, a year ago or last summer of 2007 that wouldn't it be nice if we had some creatures in here? And then I think about all those people who've done good insect or small organism simulations. And instead of trying to build a giant 
uniform scene graph with all the elements you'd ever want. Why don't why don't the good ant, ant simulators export their ants in some kind of XML capsule so they can go into Claude's forest and be unwrapped and uh, with some kind of API or behavior layer the ants uh, can move around or the apes, uh, the uh, nobilicious apes <laughs> can move around in the forest and so then suddenly uh, the apes of the ants are, are eating the leaves off the trees, and there's something new. There's there's something new going on in in Claude's world, and there's something new for uh, apes and ants and other things to do. And, and certainly, uh, the idea is very sticky. I mean, we received correspondence just this week from Ricardo Mendez, and this was I mean, this is the original groundswell of, of interest and support from existing simulators. And I think what's really curious with regards to the idea of the Evo Grid Broad is that the life that it took on of its own when it was passed to the broader artificial life simulation community was quite phenomenal. I mean, there was an explosion. Still, there is an explosion of mailing list-related discussion whenever this topic is raised. And there are, you know, for, for every simulator, there is a different idea and a different vision in some regard. And I think what the subtlety that a lot of people have, have returned to is that it will just take a couple of simulators getting together, and a large part of that is engineering. Now, I mean, I, I hope to have Larry Yeager on this call this evening, primarily because I, I slated a, a good deal of time next year to actually integrate elements of, of Polyworld and Noble Ape. I think uh -huh. this has been a long time coming in some regard, but the chapter that, I've, uh, that will be published early next year in Nature Inspired Informatics contains a good section that both the introduction and the conclusion relating to firstly how um, Larry and I have both reinvented the same wheel in some regard through Noble Ape and Polyworld, but also how these two simulations have the, the perfect kind of com competition and hybridization model kind of intertwined within it. And certainly um, I look forward to, you know, some time next year uh, where I can um, d do further integration. I think this is this in part returns to what we were discussing last time, Bruce, with the idea of what it is to be an artificial life hobbyist, because certainly and Gerald and I have had some candid discussion over the past months with regards to this too. A large part of these projects, these hobbyist projects, uh, have to be project managed in some quite fundamental way because time is, is a scarce commodity. And this is another idea in the concept of the Evo Grid Broad that I think touched on a lot of people. I mean, certainly my original ideas with regards to implementing No Polite through an Evo Grid Broad was to create a, a prototypical XML phenotype to give a sense to the other simulators what the kind of stuff I'd like to pass out of of Noble Ape to their particular simulations would be, how it would look. And I think that in itself generated a lot of discussion, although um, there's an interesting phenomenon currently just kind of behind the scenes with regards to the artificial life community. And I'm saddened to say that I'm not an active participant in this, but a number of the um, longer-term simulators now have small children. Uh, and this is one of the, the benefits of Facebook, that you can catch up with John Klein and Dave Kerr and these kind of folk as they uh, raise their, their uh, collective little children. So a lot of the longer-term simulations who I hoped would be engaged in this kind of Evo Grid broad um, collaboration they are actually dealing with uh, new intelligent agents of the human variety in their, in their own lives, which may cause uh, some lags. However, what interests me with regards to uh, Polyworld in particular, is that it's um, the, the base ideas in Polyworld are very similar to Noble Ape with regards to how the uh, agents are delimited and also the, the environment. Um, so I think for an Evo Group broad style collaboration far further than uh, just XML communication, Polyworld and Noble Ape are ideally suited. But when I talked to Gerald Deung and folks who listened to the podcast will remember this, he was very sceptical with regards to what even the Evo Grid Broad was trying to do because obviously you have questions of dimensionality, size, uh, problems of interaction. Uh, Gerald's forms have no uh, means of, of communication. They have no external world sensors. Their evolution is very heavily tied to movement and movement alone. And I think that creates... a you know, a kind of uh, a blind form wandering through the Noble Ape landscape, you know, how, how will the collaboration actively work? 
And I put to Gerald that there is, in fact, an even more subtle view with regards to the Evo Group Broad, which is just getting simulators sharing source code. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the problem with regards to these engineering projects that are artificial life projects is that so much time is devoted to maintaining the source code. I'm doing it currently with Noble Ape. I'm rewriting the, the, a large portion of it to be compatible uh, with the later Mac operating systems and also the iPhone. And hats off here to John Klein, who did all of this stuff with regards to Breve, you know, three or four years ago. But these kind of general engineering problems do bog down the artificial life uh, practitioner uh, quite frequently. And I think what excites Gerald is the potential to collaborate. I mean, Gerald's talking currently with regards to planetary simulation, and certainly the legacy of the Noble Lake development has been with regards to planetary simulation as well. I passed him code previously. I'll pass him code in the future. So in terms of Evo Grid Broad being on a number of levels, Bruce, do you think I've missed any elements in my in my broad discussion. Well you're you're reminding me that it was in a an intense discussion either January or February about this when Gerald pointed out he said, look, you know, my Darwin at home and my simulations, they're really internal. They need a ton of high fidelity, high performance physics and feedback and to do what they do. And then it struck me that he was talking about something that was deep, that needed deep computation and, and a lot of it. And that actually started this whole, whole thinking process, and I have to credit Gerald for this, about the deep idea, which then came to complete fruition and flowering when I read Dick Gordon's chapter for the book, which talked about you know a programming challenge to artificial life you know, developers to do Hoyle's uh, uh, theory that you know you could create from a random section of junk you could uh, 747 would be somehow created and that was Hoyle's uh, comments I think about 25 years ago but basically what what Dick Gordon was saying is what about an artificial origin of life or an origin of artificial life and that kind of captured my imagination because I said you know what that's a deep that's that's as big an artificial life life deep simulation as you could ever imagine because you're starting from some kind of basic building blocks and running a very, very high performance, very, very compute intensive multi-processor hence a grid uh, simulation to see if something emerges from that. And you're not actually doing much engineering beyond uh, creating the environment. The engineering and the algorithms and the structures and the vesicles and whatever comes out comes out through emergent phenomena, not through your own hand. So that's how the Gerald's objection to Evil Grid Broad was led to the birth of the deep. Certainly, certainly. And behind all of this, and this is really Dick's instigation as well, there is the idea that there are people who are listening to this podcast currently who are doing either uh, later year gra uh, undergraduate or graduate courses in things that relate to artificial life. There is a a super skilled generation just coming up through everything that has been written previously plus all the biota podcasts to date and they I think will have a skill set that will be distinctly different to contemporary practitioners and may have insights into uh, these these kind of questions as well I mean one of the questions that I want to put to both Larry Yeager and Mark Badeau when I have them on next year is how they actually look to um, skill through coursework, through potential future textbooks, all these kind of ideas, the next generation, because what you describe and what uh, Dick describes primarily, particularly with regards to ideas of physics and entropy and what's been discussed recently through the Bioconversations mailing list, I mean, what what needs to be part of the soup in order to make an artificial life simulation? To date, because the practitioners have come in from so many different areas, I mean, even the basics are still relatively controversial about what, what is the bare minimum that you need to have in order to create an, a true artificial life simulation if such a thing exists. And I think this is, um, in some regard, Dick's instigation. It was also, historically, people like Brig Kleisers and the Panspermian instigation as well with regards to the idea of could you actually make true emergent behavior from a closed system, which is ultimately what Dick is, is talking about primarily in his yeah, challenge. And if I jump in here, now that Dick and I both have the Protocells book, you know, uh, Mark and Steen and, and you know, 
the, the book, the, the big massive $70 book, uh, Dick said, read Chapter 2, David Deemer's Chapter 2, because there he's, you know, how you can glean from what he's saying, and I know Rasmussen has done this before in Artificial Life 2 in the, the proceedings of the second conference back in the early 90s, but there Deemer describes the basic building blocks of what he would consider a living system. And so can you please, and Vic has asked me as an assignment for for the doctoral work, which I'm taking on, is read that chapter, extract what Deemer says, and apply that to artificial life. What would you say are those the basic building blocks, uh, the basic properties of, of an entity you would consider to be artificially alive? So there we are. Certainly. And I mean, it's a, it's a problem for the folks who are currently setting up coursework for artificial life uh, students or people that are, are taking it as part of some university uh, qualification, how they frame that kind of problem. And I think it was interesting in one of the Thanksgiving recordings we did with regards to the artificial life curriculum, talking about the you know the, the many aspects of, of skilling that folks need to have before they come to develop an artificial life simulation. Although I've taught generally that you don't need to necessarily have a university background in mathematics, physics, biology, philosophy, computer science, all these things are helpful. But per the ongoing discussion with folks like Gerald and Jeffrey, the way you come to these problems with regards to your kind of prior reading list and also the, um, you know, the views and beliefs that you have leading into it will ultimately frame the problem as well. And I think this is what's fascinating with regards to the idea of the Evo Group Broad as a kind of community collaboration is that there are, there are a number of levels, but one of the levels is fundamentally uh, epistemological. It's fundamentally to do with the, the knowledge baggage that each of the contributors have when they arrive at the, the question. And I think particularly through my discussion with Gerald, which has gone on for months over these, over these BioTalive recordings, what I found particularly interesting is that the, the concession from Gerald is that we have all done work which we can all benefit from. And I yeah. think this is a, an, an interesting kind of pluralist discussion. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the kind of nuts and bolts of what I hope to do with, with Polyworld and Noble Ape, because I think this will give some framing to other practitioners who want to do the same thing. I mean, when I look at, for example, frame, uh, Framsticks and Brevet, or when I look at Framsticks and Darwin at home, I, I see a great deal of, of similar uh, collaboration. I mean, particularly with regards to visualization. So before I really dig into the, the Polyworld Noble Ape analysis, I mean, can you talk a little bit about the, the power of visualization in the Evo Group Broad project, Bruce? Well, I think visualization is sort of a double-edged sword. For me, visualization in the Evo Group Broad, I mean, all of the people who are building artificial life simulations we are, you know, we are an optical visual species, and we thrive on visual uh, input. And so, the visual layer is really important, and, and it also gives you, because of game technology, primarily you get physics engines, and you get kind of the simulacrum of reality by doing frame by frame computation of a visual scene graph. The double-edged sword, of course, is that then you're clocking the artificial life simulation down to 30 frames a second or whatever the human can deal with and and also burdening the, the simulation with a whole lot of what in nature is actually unnecessary stuff, which is the, the visuals, you know, or texturing objects and putting them out and doing, you know, calculating uh, polygons. Whereas in a pure artificial life simulation, kind of akin to... Uh, into Tom Ray's Tierra is a sort of pure numerical simulation. It can actually get a lot more done for the computing dollar, but then it's less accessible. So there, there's a trade-off in here. And the Evil Grid Broad, I think of as really being a connection of visual simulations. Where the, where the possible parity comes is if you think about SETI at home, SETI at home has a visual interface but it's dealing with a massive store of data, and you only have one little window into it. So perhaps an evil grid broad would, would create some kind of unified uh, scene graph somewhere, but you only have to render and look at part of it. And it can run lights out without having to render each frame. It can run on its own. You can poke your head in. 
Certainly. And I mean, this, this is a cliche through these bios lives, but the selection pressure for artificial life developers, particularly hobbyist artificial life developers as users, and the, the success that Tierra had in the academic sphere was pr primarily relating to the way academic uh, simulations are visualized through papers. They're not as heavily visualized, obviously, as kind of popular hobbyist simulation. So really it goes hand in hand that the folks who appear on, on Biota Live and who have appeared on previous uh, Biota interviews are folks who are typically have had a, a, a visualization component to the simulations that they've developed purely because it gives amazing feedback in terms of users. I mean, I think a lot of the folk uh, probably could do their developments in complete isolation, but it's always nice to have users and particularly users that give um, you know, great feedback in terms of motivating additional development angles and, and, and pushing the, the simulator in new directions. But I wanted to return to the nuts and bolts idea of what this, this Evo Group Broad will take. And I have skirted over the idea of the XML phenotype in some regard, primarily because it's already been discussed relatively heavily in previous biota lives. But the XML phenotype is just a, an information a protocol, a way of describing almost a, a kind of ping, analogous to ping on the internet in terms of saying, I'm here, this is what I look like, you know, do with me as you will. The ideas of integration that I'm discussing with regards to Noble Life and Polyworld are fundamentally more primary. And what I wanted to talk about initially here is the idea that code exists to describe things. And this is something which, particularly if you develop an artificial life project for a long period of time, and I look at the Polyworld code and I see code that's circa, you know, 92, 94 in terms of Larry's um, development, and it's very much in those styles. So there already exists a, a, a subset of artificial life projects that have very old legacy code. And what I'm trying, what I will do um, through the, the rewrite is, uh, in some regard, modernize a lot of that code, but also point out to Larry that it's exactly the same underlying concepts. I mean, certainly my experience with regards to Noble Ape has been a historical and continuous rewrite. In fact, Bruce and I talked uh, last weekend, and I made the point to Bruce that when I was doing the original development of Noble Ape, I also recorded a lot of my own compositions. And when I came to do a rewrite of Noble Ape when I was in Stockholm in 2000, I think 2000, 2001, uh, when I did a major rewrite of the simulation and released it all open source, it was listening to the music that I'd recorded uh, four odd years previously that brought me back to the same kind of mindset with regards to the development. But I guess, Bruce, as you're finding currently with the NERS code, you have to, um, partially just due to contemporary compilers, I think modern compilers are relatively unforgiving to historical code, but also if you're looking to do any kind of collaboration, you're going to have to dust off old code and probably almost completely rewrite it to the point where only very simple fundamentals remain the same. But it is still the same underlying idea, so I wanted to put out in the podcast the idea that code is not the fundamental here. It is, in fact, the ideas that motivated the writing of the code. So when you take uh, two simulations, you're, it would be very rare. And this, I mean, John Klein and I have been in correspondence for probably three or four years now with regards to me writing a, a component of uh, Brevet that was specifically tailored to Noble Ape and these kind of possible collaborations. And I think there the difficulty was always that there was such a large interface code base um, with regards to Brevo specifically, that the, the interface, and I know, Bruce, you've been on the, the Moon Monkeys project, all these kind of projects where the idea was to make the artificial life simulations almost into a library as a means of doing this kind of collaboration. So our historical legacy and experiences of these kind of projects have typically been that they don't work. You need to really get back into the raw code and write some kind of intercompatible hybridization. And the beauty of, of Polyworld of Noble Ape is that the fundamentals of the simulations are relatively simple. Now, for both Brevet and Noble Ape, the, sorry, for both Polyworld and Noble Ape, the contradiction in that relates to the cognitive simulation. And I think this is the interesting comparison that I have talked about in my Nature-Inspired Informatics chapter. Fundamentally, Polyworld and Noble Ape are the same kind of simulation till you get to the cognitive simulation. Larry Eger has talked in great detail with regards to the time that he put into writing the neural network for Polyworld. And similarly, in A Bio to Live, I have talked in relatively great detail about the 
background and work that I put into the Noble Eight Cognitive Simulation. And I think these are the two uh, distinctions between Polyworld and Noble Eight, which also represent relatively large chunks of code. So rather than dealing with that in some regard, my interest is to kind of encapsulate the Noble Ape, which is the, the intelligent or simulated agent within Noble Ape, and in Polyworld, the sea monkey, and you'll see the um, comparisons already in the naming, and make those two independent agent objects that can then inhabit the same simulation space. And I think that is, well, it's relatively non-trivial, but at least it's a, a doable thing in a certain time frame. What you then find is that the, the simulation spaces, primarily where the, the sea monkeys roam and where the noble apes roam, are relatively similar. The distinctions are that noble ape has undulating surfaces, it has an idea of line of sight, it has water, uh, and it has weather. Both uh, Polyworld and noble ape have, I guess what you'd call biological simulations. In Polyworld, it's to do with the distribution of food and other objects. In Noble similarly, but they use different algorithms. And I think what will be interesting initially is whether we can hybridize the landscape of, of Noble Ape and the weather and the water and all these kind of features, which certainly Larry is very excited about, and then potentially put the polyworld feeding uh, in the, the kind of hybridized simulation. As you listen to this discussion, Bruce, I mean, this is obviously, you know, relatively high-level concepts, but still quite exciting in terms of the potential I mean, what's your own thinking with regards to these kind of hybridizations? I, I'm really looking forward to seeing the first, the first one because I think everybody's going to look at that and say, boy, I could, I could connect into that system. I, I, want, I want to have my efforts enriched by what these guys have done. And, and what you can see is that there's a parallel here, which is in the 1980s, there were all these disparate email systems. There were SGML-based uh, document repositories, proprietary repositories, IBM systems. It was just a hodgepodge of networks. And I think as soon as you started to see, oh, the universities are talking to the government using TCP/IP and, and Ethernet, and the companies were sort of saying, yeah, but you know, we've got much better technology. But stu very soon, you know, sort of the late 80s. And into the early 90s, they're like, oh, I can route all this stuff. I can route, I can reach everybody. And uh, you just need to adopt this relatively simple protocol and build, put a Cisco box down there, and it'll convert from your protocol. And, and it, it happened like a thunderclap. You know, by the mid-90s, all of the proprietary networks were subsumed. And, and I think, in a sense, if this is like the effect that we're looking for. So if, if noble apes are encapsulated uh, and working with Polyworld or, or Darwin's Pond or stuff like this starts happening, and you almost have a, have a Watson, I need you moment, Alexander Graham Bell, where you say, oh, one of your creatures has just, has just appeared in my world and is interacting. And when everybody sees that and they see the YouTube video of that happening, it's going to be a powerful motivator for people to join in. And that, that's my biggest excitement when that, that moment happens. Certainly. I mean, I think the difficulty with Polyworld and Noble Ape is the level of visualization in both of them. So what we've discussed already with regards to visualization, you don't necessarily see. In terms of uh, collaborative effort, the initial response is going to be fundamentally academic. But, I mean, what I put out in the Nature Inspired Informatics chapter is that there are all these kind of competitive metrics that can come out of this. Although I haven't actually done the, the hard work, my... My sense is that the noble apes are fundamentally fear-driven and very, very reactive, and the nature of the strategic movement is ultimately based on this kind of fear reaction, whereas the uh, polyworld sea monkeys have a quite a detailed and slowly adapting neural network, and I think what will come out of this is almost a, um, a psychology of the two uh, simulated entities, although obviously this will push Larry Yeager in a direction that he doesn't necessarily want to go from our last uh, chat with him. But I think these kind of things will come out. Certainly what I say in Nature Inspired Informatics is that I think there's a great potential for hybridizing the cognitive simulations of Noble Life and Polyworld and actually uh, getting in some regard the best of both worlds, perhaps 
uh, some kind of fear motivator that has the broader neural network behind it, or potentially even the ability to put something like uh, Ken Stanley's NEAT or other neural network models in, or actually use it for what I originally hoped Noble 8 would be used for, which is a testing of all these kind of uh, philosophical computer science AI brain models that seem to be coming together in an environment which has obviously um, proven itself in some regard as a test bed for these kind of ideas. So I think initially what will come out of this kind of collaboration will probably be far more exciting and esoteric within the um, existing artificial life community. But I think what happens in a, in a longer term sense is that uh, firstly there's the potential for visualizers to get involved, folks that have uh, a background with regards to uh, contemporary and uh, even future visualization methods, the ability for uh, artists and other collaborative folk to get involved. And I think because Larry and I have come to it from distinctly different perspectives, uh, you know, I have an existing Noble Ape user base, Larry has an existing uh, group of, uh, you know, Polyworlds users, and certainly I think there's good fit there. I also feel this way with regards to uh, both John Klein and Dave Kerr. I mean, Dave Kerr's user base for uh, AI Planet in particular is uh, phenomenal and the, the world over. I mean, Dave Kerr has done through visualization what we have been talking about for uh, for years with regards to other artificial life simulations. And his visualization is very similar to Jerry's kind of cutesy, cartoony uh, thing that fits in very well with the kind of uh, anime cultures and these kind of things. But, you know, there, there are users there. There are folks that are interested in that. And the potential for, um, as you say, the momentum to build for other simulators to get involved and the potential for additional visualization. But I think what's interesting when you describe the idea of the email protocols is that these were fundamentally very simple protocols. And what will interest me through doing these kind of collaborations is whether we do actually fundamentally simplify or whether what we do through the hybridization is actually create what I think is probably more exciting for folks like Dick Gordon and even people like Justin Lane, which is a new kind of simulation science, a, a series of new metaphors, a series of new uh, mathematics and new ideas which can then you know, motivate uh, Larry's future students and the future folk at, who are going through at Sussex and these kind of people to get involved with these kind of collaborations. As you look at the kind of contemporary artificial life community, Bruce, do you think this will be a kind of greater motivator if uh, if we have a kind of Novalite polyworld hybrid? Or, I mean, do you think this is going to be a broader motivator to other members in the community either to, to cross-collaborate or, or join the slowly growing um, intelligent agent ape community, for want of a better description? I mean, do you see that happening? I do see it happening, and I see a number of... of, of uh Artificial life. I, I think that what will happen if, if say, a really cool YouTube video is made of, of, of the Watson come here, I need you moment, uh, you're going to find uh, artificial life developers that we don't even know about uh, raising their hands and coming in and maybe downloading the protocol or the XML spec and exporting. You know, what, what would be great is you may not even know who they are, and they, they export something into the XML spec and put it in a container somewhere on, online, a pool. And you say, somebody's just generated something we can now pick up. We don't even know the source. They've just said, here, here's a present from, from my artificial life environment. And then you might say, well, here's how it's doing. And then they'll say, well, here, here's my project. You know, that kind of thing will be very cool if it happens. Certainly. And, I mean, you've really given the genesis to both these EvoGrid uh, broad and EvoGrid deep ideas, but I see certainly with your PhD work you're getting more heavily involved with the EvoGrid deep, primarily I think also because this EvoGrid broad is just so sticky that, you know, if, if folks like Larry Yeager and myself start collaborating or Gerald DeYoung and John Klein and Dave Kerr and if, if Jeffrey releases uh, Dawkins' puddle, I mean, I think the potential for the Evo Grid Broad to almost run itself without someone necessarily at the helm is there. Is this the way you, you see it with regards to your own involvement with Evo Grid Broad versus Evo Grid Deep? Yeah, exactly. I think the Evo Grid Broad is a thing. It's a thing of a distributed community. It's partnerships, people, as you say, the idea is sticky, 
and somebody cogitating on the idea for long enough and saying, calling, ringing somebody else up and saying, let's try this, I'm going to send you something. And then others do it. it. It's a collective action. And the only thing that I I can really contribute is this sort of uh, is championing the idea and trying to explain it in really clear terms as we've done for about a year now. And it seems to be catching on. And the EvoGrid uh, Broad is, is a bit of a risky proposition for a PhD project because it's so dependent on so many variables. Um, if it starts to be successful in the next year or two, I'll write it up and say, this is an activity that I helped initiate and I'll study it. I'll study what is going on. And it'll be a it'll actually be a significant part of the research, the studies of what has happened. You know, the people and maybe looking at the statistical shifts in these simulations as a result of them being gridded or connected. But you, in general, it's it's a little bit risky because um, it relies on other people doing doing things. And for a PhD, I've got to meet a timetable of, of deliverables. Certainly. Um, and I mean, similarly, I, I feel this way with regards to it as well. I mean, my... Having having published two chapters this year, my hope was to publish two chapters next year as well, and kind of maintain that momentum of, of professional publication. But I think getting involved with something like the Evo Grid Broad will take such a large portion of my time, and also I, I'm at the stage of a, a major rewrite for Apple as well. So as a as a practitioner as well as a communicator in this field, I find um, you know my own time is is relatively uh, scarce. But when I devote it to these kind of projects, it needs to almost be through a, a project managed fashion. And I think what will the potential of what will come through this will be just as powerful in some regard as professional publication because you will get uh, a kind of lazing of the folk that. Uh, Obviously, Larry can bring in, and also the folk that I can bring in too. And I think from that, certainly papers will be published, and the potential of communicating these ideas in a very fundamental level will be uh, equal, if not better, uh, than you know an occasional publication. But in, just in terms of time frames, this is a non-trivial effort, and I wanted to make this point very clear to the community that the reason that there has been so much discussion associated with this is that people want to you know, clear in their own minds, basically, the kind of time commitment that they'll need to put in to uh, this kind of collaboration and also the kind of risk-benefit analysis that you just discussed, Bruce. And I think my own thinking is that the only way forward, aside from doing this kind of communication through something like Biota Live, is through the practitioners to actually, you know, roll up their sleeves and start doing this kind of collaboration. I think it's a way of moving the narrative forward very rapidly in terms of what we're all trying to do with artificial life and show that this isn't just a pie-in-the-sky dream. It was interesting when Eric Burton was on, and this will actually be the audio that's released uh, towards the end of the year, um, because he talks about hybridizing fram sticks and Aveda. And my sense is that there are probably super users in the community that are already trying to do uh, these kind of experiments, but to do it in a very formal uh, and, and, you know, methodological and slow processed manner is something which in itself will generate, I think, a lot of uh, ideas and a lot of assistive feedback for folks such as uh, Gerald and other folks who are interested now in collaborating their time to these kind of projects. I don't necessarily see Evo Grid uh, broad and Evo Grid deep in being in competition because I think certainly the, there is a, a very clear shared philosophy. For folks listening to this podcast and thinking these almost seem like two separate projects, I mean, what would what would you describe the unifying philosophy between Evo Grid Broad and Evo Grid Deep as being, Bruce? Well, it's actually really interesting because if you pull back and you say, what if we had, you know, a dozen or fifty or a hundred uh, different artificial life environments all connected, exchanging objects, and what if what if at the same time we had uh, you know, 10,000 computers running an emergent phenomenon simulation in, in, in the deep idea. Well, actually, you're going to get the same kind of thing. You're going to get tremendous emergent phenomena. You're starting with a little bit of a leg up with EvoGrid Broad because you've got all these different selection pressures of users and environments, and the building blocks maybe are more complex. And so you may see interesting emergent phenomena in the broad much sooner than you do in the deep. 
the deep the deep is a proof for the skeptics. It's a proof for the pure biologists or the Darwinists or whoever you might, or the, the true skeptics, that uh, the, the hand of the engineer did not make this. And so the, one of them will, will show tremendous emergent phenomena and complex entities. The other one may show emergent phenomena and fairly simple entities, but one was done in a more controlled way as far as they were concerned, more scientific. So, so that's really. The, but in the end, all you're after is uh, is things you can wonder at. You can say, well, look at what emerged from here that was not built by the hand. Uh, pits of it might have been built by hands of people, but what's come out is something greater. Certainly, it is. It is very much this idea of the gestalt. Although, I certainly wouldn't downplay the amount of extreme engineering that will be no doubt needed in order to construct Evo Grid Deep as well. I mean, I think the the nature of these kind of projects is that you can never really see where you are until you've actually come pretty close to the end if they ever actually do conclude. And really, I mean, you're at the process currently where you're, you're rolling up your sleeves, Bruce. I mean, with only three minutes remaining, can you, can you give some outline to, you know, what the next couple of months will mean in terms of what you're doing with your PhD in the EvoGrid? Yeah, I have to do a lot of reading, but I also, um, last weekend I got the NERVS code from 1995 uh, built, and I started making changes to it. And so now the, the goal that Peter Newman and I have is I'm going to be passing him pointers to data structures that he can then use in digital spaces, which is our open source uh, 3D framework we built with NASA support, uh, to show what I call a cube of a cube of bouncing balls, um, something, very, very beginning steps of showing uh, particles of different properties moving around in some way, really just a demonstration. Uh, and that has to be done all by February, middle of February. Wow. So you've got, you've got your work cut out for you in the next few months, basically. Yeah. And, of course, I, before we run out of time, I want to congratulate Tom for being in a new space, a new living and working space. Well, thank you. It's uh, it's pure luxury. In fact, it's quite overwhelming in some regard. But uh, I'm I'm hoping that we'll have Robert Rice through at least for an interview, and possibly even possibly even you, Bruce, in the in the near future. Because uh, you know, it's it's a real luxury uh, to be here, and and quite overwhelming to have little things like my books laid out in the library and these kind of things. So with a minute remaining, I need to wrap things up. I need to thank everyone. Firstly, those who participated in the past year's Biota Lives. It's been truly overwhelming. We've recorded a lot of audio. A lot of great ideas have gotten out there. And I'd also like to thank the listening audience because you folks are contributing. And please remember uh, my initial requests at the start of this podcast with regards to folks emailing me, tom at noble8.com, with regards to ideas for next year because I hope to get a lot more folk involved, but also the existing participants have been extremely, extremely insightful and wonderful, and certainly a lot of, uh, lot of deep conversation has come through this. Thank you very much for the chance of, to chat with you once again this evening, Bruce. My pleasure. <laughs>